You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by author Paul Shapiro. And Paul Shapiro is the author of a book called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. And this is a very fascinating topic. I think for all of you keto heads and paleo heads out there that are focused on eating grass-fed meat and high protein and low fat, um, we really cover the whole basis. This concept is taking a piece, a small chunk of meat from an actual living animal and growing it in petri dishes, more specifically in like brewer's vats like you would get, uh, like you would see at a beer brewery. The implications for this technology are massive. Investors like Bill Gates, Cargill, Tyson Foods, Richard Branson are all getting on board because quite frankly, if we could switch to this type of meat consumption and meat creation, uh, it would sure solve a lot of problems on the planet. And we cover how it's made, what are the implications, just amazing, amazing amount of information on this. And it's provocative. It's sensational. And at first I was like, no way. I'm not going to eat meat grown in a dish. And, and, And then I considered the alternative, how much of my meat, and I'm very careful about the meat that I eat, how much of my meat is actually coming from from places where it's grown in deplorable conditions using hormones. I do my best not to, to, to eat very um, uh, non-factory farmed meat, but you know, I go out to dinner sometimes and sometimes I don't know. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode. As always, give me your feedback. If you like this kind of content, send me an email, sean at naturalstacks.com. I really look forward to hearing back from you guys. And it's so awesome to be back on the OPP bandwagon for another season. You can follow me on Instagram at Coach Sean McCormick. And yeah, I can't wait to get into this. Without further ado, everybody, Paul Shapiro. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And we're here with Paul Shapiro, who is the author of Clean Meat. And Paul, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. What a pleasure to be with you, Sean. Thanks so much. So I like to give our guests an opportunity to introduce themselves. Um, Give us the elevator pitch on who you are. Uh, Sure. So I wrote a book that's called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. And what the book basically does, it explores the race to commercialize the world's first ever clean meats. These are not uh, really alternatives to meat. We're not talking about substitutes to meat. We're not talking about plant-based meats or veggie burgers. We are talking about real meat made from animal cells so that you don't have to raise and slaughter animals, but instead can just simply grow animal cells at the microscopic level and grow them into actual meat, like the meat that 
people eat today. So that's what the book's about, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it. Additionally, I'm also uh, the co-founder and CEO of an alternative protein company myself that I founded in 2018 called The Better Meat Co., which is a cool company that is not making clean meats. It's making plant-based proteins, but maybe we can get into that too. Awesome. Excellent. Well, th- this is an interesting I'm, – I'm really excited to talk to you because I, I feel like our audience is uh, very thoughtful people. And, and I, th- I think a, like, like myself, a lot of them would be interested in continuing to consume animal meat and animal products, uh, especially in the you know, primal, paleo, ketogenic – uh, movement, we all really value uh, the the consumption of meat, but also we're intelligent, thoughtful people. And, and it seems to me like when you take out animal suffering, when you take out antibiotics, when you take out uh, GMO grains that created the animals, when you take out the suffering in the factory farming, this is really an excellent solution to accomplish Let's tell me first about your experience eating uh, eating a, a cow chip. <laughs> well, first, I'm very honored that you've obviously read the book, Sean. So I appreciate that. Uh, so, in 2014, more humans had gone into space than had ever consumed real meat grown outside of an animal, and I was very fortunate to become one of the first people to do so. It was in Brooklyn. There was a company called Modern Meadow, still exists today, although now they're focused on growing cow skin rather than cow meat, so they're making leather. But uh, Andres Forgox, the CEO of Modern Meadow, was generously hosting me on a tour of his facility. And I knew that he was growing meat, but I had no idea he was going to offer me a bite. (laughs) Now, keep in mind... You know, the year prior in 2013, the world's first ever clean hamburger was grown and consumed. And this was a burger that cost uh, 330,000 US dollars. And so, uh, you know, even if cost had come down substantially, uh, the idea of me eating some of this meat, uh, I knew that this was a very pricey proposition for my host. But he was very generous and he offered me a st- what he called a steak chip, which is basically cow cells that he had grown in his facility and he dehydrated it and it wasn't really like steak it was more kind of like a uh, potato chip that was made out of meat instead of made out of instead of like a hamburger or a steak but it it tasted very good i mean he had he had dehydrated and barbecued it so it tasted like jerky and and that's pretty much what it was it was jerky i liked it and uh, i i wish that he had offered me more actually i had only a small amount but uh, he was very kind and uh, since then, I've gone on to eat other types of animal products that were grown outside of animals. So I've eaten now uh, clean uh, pork, duck, fish, liver, chorizo, even foie gras. And what this shows is that for years or really for millennia, the only way we've had to get meat essentially has been out of animals' bodies. Now we can just harvest a few microscopic cells from those animals' bodies and grow the meat without having to raise and slaughter the whole animal. And uh, I'm really proud to have been one of the first people to have consumed such meat. But today, more and more people are eating them. Not that it's been commercialized yet, but there are now about two dozen startups across the globe making these types of meats, and they are in a race to commercialize their products. And they're giving lots of tastings now to journalists and investors and others. So it's no longer that exclusive of a club. 
but within the coming years, pretty much anyone will soon be able to try it once it is commercialized. So now it's a matter of R&D and driving the price down so that it's uh, realistic for consumers. Is that right? Yeah, I think there's really three obstacles to the commercialization of this type of meat. The first is what you just said, Sean, which is you need to get the price way down. And the price has come way down. I mean, you know, what was a $330,000 burger five years ago uh, now would probably only cost hundreds of, not probably, now would cost only hundreds of dollars to make. So you can see that there's like this Moore's Law type effect where the price has really precipitously come down in the last five years. And similarly, I mean, the first iPhone, um, I'm sure, would cost over a billion dollars. Yet now most of us are walking around with smartphones in our pockets. So that type of cost will continue to come down. I'm not that concerned about it. There is, although, another concern, which is potential government regulations. In other words, will the governments of the world allow this type of meat to be sold? And I think that's not going to be the same answer from country to country. I think in some countries, the pathway to commercialization will be facilitated by the government. And in other countries, it may be hindered by the government. And it could be hindered for a variety of reasons, most notably that a lot of governments, especially uh, in the U.S., tend to be very protectionist of their agriculture industries. Well, think about it. If you could produce meat without having to raise animals, what happens to all of the uh, all of the interest groups that are representing the slaughterers, the transporters, the breeders, all these folks who are involved in, in raising animals for food. I mean, it's not dissimilar to what happened to the horse-drawn carriage industry when Henry Ford came out with the Model T. So there's a there could be protectionist policies to try to hinder this um, in the same way that, let's say, clean energy threatens coal and oil and other fossil fuels. Uh, clean meat uh, could be viewed as a threat to conventional meat. Now, I like, hope to talk more about that later because I think there are some forward-thinking meat companies that actually see it more as an opportunity rather than as a threat, but we can get to that. And then the third, so the first is bringing the cost down, the second is government regulations, and the third is uh, consumer acceptance. Uh, will consumers be eager to eat this type of meat? And I think many will. What the polling shows is that uh, large portions of Americans at least are pretty eager to eat this when they uh, understand what the benefits are, that this is meat that is better for the environment. In fact, it generally speaking takes 99% less land to produce this type of meat than the way that we produce meat today, that it's safer for you. It's called clean meat, not only as a nod to clean energy, but also because of its food safety benefits. So when you think about raw meat today, there's a reason that we are warned to treat it with great caution. You're not supposed to put it in the same grocery bag. If you put raw meat on your counter in your kitchen, you're supposed to decontaminate it afterwards. And the reason is because there's fecal contamination on it. Uh, when we talk about E. coli and salmonella and campylobacter, those are intestinal pathogens that can sicken us if we don't cook the crap out of our meat, literally. That's, I mean, we're literally <laughs> cooking the crap out of the meat. Uh, but with clean meat, you're not growing intestines at all. You're just growing the muscle and the fat. So you don't need to worry as much about intestinal pathogens like E. coli or salmonella. In fact, you're more likely to infect the meat with your hands than the meat is to infect you. So when consumers understand the benefits, the environmental benefits, the food safety benefits, the ethical benefits, uh, I think that they're going to be very eager to eat this type of meat. Yeah, I can remember the first time that I heard that they were growing meat in petri dishes for human consumption. And my first reaction was, oh, that's gross. That's 
that's unnatural. Like it, it I can't, I can't, I can't imagine what's it going to taste like. You know, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to eat lab meat. And then I thought, <laughs> and I've come around full circle. Uh, is it is it more gross to eat <laughs> right. a, a a brewed a brewed meat or a, or a lab grown meat? Is it more gross to eat that or to eat an animal that's been tortured and that has plumped with antibiotics and grown in in just deplorable conditions and sat on a shelf for four or five days or longer uh, to take home and cook and eat and I think that a lot of us uh, understand the, the dynamic there between those two thoughts. And so the whole it's unnatural, uh, you know, sort of gut reaction that I think uh, a lot of people have. Uh, wh- what would you say to folks that say, oh, that's just unnatural? <laughs> well, Sean, uh, first of all, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. I agree with what you said. Uh, but I guess I would take it even a step further and, and suggest the following. Think about how we pr- produce meat today. Most people don't eat meat because of, of how it is produced. They really eat meat really in spite of how it is produced. Most people aren't thinking, oh, I'm so happy an animal was slaughtered for this. Uh, they probably aren't thinking, I'm glad this animal was pumped full of antibiotics or, homor- or hormones or uh, lived in her own feces. I mean, just think about the way that we, uh, that we raise chickens today. I mean, most of the chickens who we eat have been genetically selected to grow so big so fast that many of them have difficulty walking more than a few steps before they collapse. They live in overcrowded warehouses, sitting in their own feces, often wing to wing with other birds. They never see the light of day. They never step foot on a blade of grass. And when it's time to take them to slaughter, well, most people would probably rather not hear about it. And then you compare that to what is really the equivalent of a brewery, where you can imagine not necessarily petri dishes, but rather like a brewery, like you would see. I mean, if you went to a Sam Adams brewery or, you know, a Coors facility, what you're going to see is microbiologists in white lab coats in a gigantic factory with big um, uh, vats that are brewing beers, that are brewing various kinds of beer. Well, the same is true with clean meat, that what you would see is probably people in lab coats but you would see these vats where they're brewing animal cells. So instead of brewing beer, they're basically brewing meat. And you could have your own local neighborhood meat brewery where they're adding their own artisanal touch to it to make it you know, specific, let's say, even to your neighborhood. Or you could go even a step further. And just in the same way that you might imagine, let's say, a local restaurant in your neighborhood offering its own IPA that's brewed in the back, maybe they're brewing their own types of meat there. Or maybe you go even further and you think about how right now if you were to walk into your friend's home and you saw that they had, let's say, a bread maker or an ice cream maker, maybe they'll have a meat maker one day. And they'll be ordering like tea bags full of stem cells and you drop them in and you can grow your own meat in your own kitchen. Now, that's not possible today, uh, but maybe it'll be possible in the future. And I think it will seem a lot more civilized to our descendants who will probably wonder to themselves – how could anyone have ever done what we used to do? They're going to look back and think about the fact that we had a food system that mistreated huge numbers of animals, that pumped them full of drugs, that treated them in ways that most people feel uncomfortable even thinking about, let alone would they want to bear witness to, and that created real food safety risks for consumers versus 
a clean, environmentally sustainable, and humane manner of producing meat, they may think that the gross and unnatural thing is what we used to do. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, and, and as I, you know, in the biohacking community where I swim, uh, there's, I think that there's a conflict. I think that there's sort of a cognitive dissonance around, around being on the right side of history or not. And uh, when we look forward to, and we're just sort of waiting patiently for these technologies to, to get up to speed, uh, it's, it really appears like it's going to change everything. I mean, going on, going all the way back to, um, the degradation of the planet and GMO grain and corn to feed the livestock, uh, to, to put in our body, you know, there's some pretty staggering statistics around, uh, something like what a, a quarter of the, of the earth's, uh, um, livable or workable, uh, land is devoted to feeding animals, <laughs> Um, and I think that it's a it's a conflict in, in at least in my mind and in the mind I think of other people who appreciate and and really like the way that they feel um, eating and consuming animal proteins, but uh, understand that the future will come at some point where they can they can still consume clean meat and 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 get the benefits and the lifestyle and the nutritional benefits of it, but without all of the carnage. Actually, there is a really funny mockumentary that BBC did that came out about a year ago or so called Carnage. And it's really excellent. It's, it's actually really, really funny. But it is a movie about the future, 50 years from now, in which Britons can't believe that anybody used to raise animals for food. And I don't want to give any more of it away, but the movie is called Carnage, and I, I highly recommend it. But I think in general, you know, what is socially acceptable one day pretty quickly becomes socially unacceptable the next. And just look at it this way. You know, 150 years ago in our country, in the United States, the legitimate social debate was whether one human being ought to be able to own another human being. And respectable members of society, doctors, lawyers, members of Congress, held both views on that. I mean, and they argued that it was just natural. Slavery was the natural condition of humankind, that everybody from Plato to Socrates supported slavery, that the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, they all had slaves. And yet today, a blink of an eye later, historically speaking, if you were to say that you supported slavery, you would instantly become a pariah in nearly any social circle in America today. And the same is true on other issues. I mean, 100 years ago, we were debating whether more than half the population even ought to have the right to vote. 50 years ago, we were debating whether whites and blacks ought to be able to share the same drinking fountains. Uh, I mean, just even 10 or 15 years ago, there was this raucous debate over whether gay Americans deserve the same rights as other Americans, something that's not totally yet settled, but you can see the trajectory in which it's going. And so the question is, just in the same way that we look back perplexed at how our ancestors, people who are genetically identical to us for all intents and purposes, held these social views that we consider really barbaric today. I mean, slavery, denying a woman's suffrage. I mean, you know, just 100 years ago, we were debating whether children of the poor ought to be forced to work in factories with the Supreme Court regularly striking down child labor laws back then. I mean, the fact of the matter is that it's very easy for us to look back on the social views of our ancestors with bewilderment. And we wonder to ourselves, what on earth were they thinking? But it's a lot harder for us to think about our own views. 
especially on topics that we don't want to change on. And one of those has to do with our relationship with the other animals on this planet. But what a blessing that would be if we could have our meat and eat it too. If we could continue to have the type of meat that most people want to eat, yet we didn't have to raise and slaughter animals in these hideous ways in the ways that we have in recent times. And that's the promise that clean meat offers. It offers the ability to produce real animal meat without all of those negative externalities. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so enthusiastic about helping to bring about this type of a clean meat future to allow us to continue our societal and, and social evolution to build a more humane society for all of us, not just those who maybe are of the same race or the same gender or same nationality as us, but even those who maybe aren't even in our species as well. And think about the fact that they too have interests that matter, that the animals with whom we share this planet, maybe they don't exist merely for us, but rather they exist also with us. And that's the type of view that having a queen, a queen meat industry can help us develop more of. Who is the most scared about this movement? Who does this compromise the most? Well, the U.S. Cattlemen's Association has been one of the leading forces against this movement. They've petitioned the U.S. Department of Agriculture to try to prohibit this from even being called meat. I mean, keep in mind, it is meat. It is meat in the same way that ice coming out of your freezer is ice. So let me tell you what I mean by that. 150 years ago, there was a gigantic ice shipping industry. You had big blocks of ice being harvested from natural from lakes, naturally frozen in the lake. And that ice got shipped all over the world in these insulated boats so that people could have ice for their in-home ice boxes and in their drinks and so on. Well, when you enter the advent of refrigeration, all of a sudden you had a much more efficient way to get ice just by cooling the water down right in front of you. Well, the ice shipping barons were livid over this technological innovation, and they railed against what they called artificial ice, saying that this isn't even ice at all. This needs to be called artificial ice and that it's dangerous, it's unnatural, you don't even know if it's going to sicken you or not, when in reality, uh, the so-called artificial ice was actually much safer because it was being cooled from uh, filtered or boiled water that rather than just being harvested from lakes that were being polluted by both the industrial revolution and frankly by the horses who were dragging the ice out of the lakes in the first place who obviously don't exactly hold it in while they're doing their work on the on the lakes so <laughs> you know you fast forward to today though and virtually all of us have artificial ice makers in our homes we call them freezers we don't think there's anything unnatural about it at all in fact we just call it ice because that's exactly what it is and so in the same exact way that for millennia, the only way that humans had to get ice was out of nature. Then we invented a technology that gave us a more efficient and safer way to get the same thing, to get ice. Well, for millennia, we have had to get meat out of animals' bodies. Now we are beginning to invent a technology that allows us to get the same exact meat in a safer and more efficient way. And that's exactly what it is. It is meat, and it should be called meat. And so when you have efforts from groups like the U.S. Cattlemen's Association to try to prevent it from being called meat, you are reminded of these 19th century ice shipping barons who are so desperate to cling on to the status quo rather than recognizing the future. And maybe instead they should have been investing in refrigeration rather than trying to cling on to, a tech, to this industry that was about to get obliterated. So it's uh, so it's cattle ranchers. Well, that's one, uh, <laughs> but they've, they've, they've been the most vocal. But 
you know, you have other companies, though, that are actually um, taking a pretty progressive view on this. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Tyson Foods is one of the largest animal slaughterers in the world. Yet they have made numerous investments in alternative proteins now, including clean meat companies, plant-based meat companies, and so on. Uh, I think that companies that are forward-thinking companies like they are, uh, are seeing the writing on the wall. I mean, look at what happened, for example, in the world of photography, where a few decades ago you had Kodak and Canon vying for supremacy of the photography market, and one of them invested in digital and the other didn't, and now we all know what happened. Canon is now the largest manufacturer of digital cameras, and Kodak went bankrupt. And none of these meat companies want to be the Kodak. They all want to be the Canon. They want to be the horse carriage operator that invested in Ford rather than just went the way of the horse-drawn carriage. And uh, so I think while there are some in the meat industry that clearly see this as a threat and are fighting it, there are other more forward-thinking aspects of the meat industry that see this as an opportunity. They recognize that change is constant and they want to be a part of the future. Yeah. So I've got some technical questions and, 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 um, maybe, you know, some of these may be scientific and well, just, we'll just, I'll just, I'll just check. So as you know, without getting too into the process of how the meat is grown and how, or, or maybe more accurately how it's brewed, uh, is it, does the profile, the nutritional profile of the meat, uh, of the clean meat, um, decrease with time or as it, as it, uh, either with time or, or with replication from the original sort of like, um, mother cell? Uh, it doesn't appear that there's any real difference in terms of like from the mother cell. I mean, the cells, uh, replicate just like they do in the body at the same time. I mean, here's how it works. So imagine taking a sesame seed sized biopsy from a chicken or from a cow or from a pig or from a fish. You can then put that into a cultivator in that is body temperature and the cells believe that they are still inside the animal's body. And so they do exactly what they would do in the body. And these are cells that are called myosatellite cells. They're cells that their only career path in life is to become muscle. So let me just back up. So let's say Sean, that you do a hard workout and you are tearing like the microfibers in your muscles and you have these little myosatellite cells that are sitting in your muscle right now. Cows have them, chickens have them, you and I have them. And all they do is repair broken down muscle. So if you do a hard workout or you get bruised or injured, they go to work and they start building new muscle. Those are the same muscles that we eat, are the same uh, cells that we eat today when we eat meat. And that's the type of cells often that are being grown uh, by the clean meat companies. So all they're going to do, all they can do is just become more cells, more muscle cells. And so you don't really have that type of uh, degradation to my knowledge that you were referring to. But one of the cool things that you do have is because it is being brewed in a sterile environment, you don't have all of the same uh, bacteria and other uh, potential food safety concerns that when you leave clean meat out on the counter at room temperature, it goes bad at a far slower rate. Than, uh, than conventional meat. And so uh, one of the companies, Memphis Meats, actually did this experiment where they took conventional chicken and chicken they had grown and put them out on the counter. And of course, after like a day, you see visible, uh, a day or two, you see visible growth of uh, bacteria or mold on the chicken uh, that was uh, conventional. And then the clean chicken, nothing at all. 
Interesting. Well, that that bodes well for you know developing countries where refrigeration is less um, less accessible. Um, yeah, right? yeah. I, I think you're. I, I I think you're right, Sean. I just want to hit on one more point about that. Is that not only does that bode well for developing countries, but in addition, think about this: like developing countries. Let's say many countries in Africa, for example, they skipped over the landline period. Right? They had no phones, and they went to cellular phones because setting up cell towers was much easier than creating an entire landline infrastructure. Well, a lot of developing countries today, maybe they'll skip over the factory farm model and go straight from the straight to the cellular agriculture model. So instead of uh, instead of landlines, they went to cell phones. Maybe they'll be going instead of factory farms to cell ag. And so you could envision, for example, local production in these countries where instead of having to set up factory farms and slaughter plants and transport routes and create roads and everything else that you'd have to do for that, instead creating uh, breweries that can produce meat at the local level in these communities that have been on the path toward development without them having to get so many negative side effects along the way. So is it feasible that that either – that de- developing countries on on any sort of scale of their development um is it conceivable that they would be i mean is this a 10 year or 50 year thing down the road where they may be able to have the technology locally to be able to grow their own their own clean meat it wouldn't surprise me if it were closer to 10 years but it really is just speculation so right now no clean meat has been sold anywhere on the planet however uh, one company, Just, which is formerly Hampton Creek, does assert that it intends to have a sale of clean meat somewhere on the planet prior to the end of 2018. But that would really be more of like a one-time sale, not something where they're like putting it on supermarket shelves. And uh, I think, though, that by the year 2021, you're more likely to see actual uh, more meaningful commercialization of clean meat in a variety of countries. And so, you know, that's only now a few years away and actually less. And so if you uh, think about the fact that we probably will have clean meat on the market by 2021, maybe by 2030, you have a really more legitimate industry where the type of thing that you were just mentioning actually could be possible. Yeah, I really like the the, the picture you paint about local uh, clean meat producers doing their own, you know, uh, chorizo in Mexico and, um, you know, salmon up here in the Pacific Northwest and, you know, great barbecue, great clean meat barbecue down in, uh, down in, uh, in Texas. Uh, I, I like to, I like to picture that. Um, I wonder how important it is. I guess it's like anything people just get used to it. You know, we're, 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 we're pretty okay with, uh, boneless, skinless chicken nuggets, you know, that's probably low hanging fruit for clean meat, right? Is to grow a, um, sort of, uh, nugget shaped, uh, clean meat piece of chicken, um, rather than, you know, a rack. I mean, there's not going to be any bones in it. So it's not like you can order a rack of ribs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right. So that's not possible right now. Uh, right now the companies are primarily doing things like, um, Chicken nuggets, sausages, meatballs, fish sticks, anything that comes in a ground meat form is something that they can do now. It's a technologically higher hurdle to get to something like a ribeye or like baby back ribs 
Um, but maybe through, let's say, like 3D printing technologies, you could do something like that. Uh, so huh. I, I, I can envision, for example, maybe you don't grow the bone, but maybe you print the bone. Like, why not print bones that you then uh, affix the meat to? So, you know, there might be some ways to get around that. But uh, the real issue for growing thicker cuts of meat, let's say like a T-bone steak, is essentially that um, meat is a lot more than muscles, uh, muscle cells. There's also fat cells, there's connective tissue and blood vessels. And the blood vessels help bring nutrients to, uh, to the cells uh, throughout the muscle. And so if you have a thick muscle, there's lots of cells in there. And uh, right now the companies are basically bathing the cells in nutrients, um, like in the food for the cells, the same types of foods they'd be getting if they were in the body. But there aren't blood vessels, so it's tough to grow anything thicker than ground meat because the cells that are in the middle of then they would go necrotic. They don't get the type of nutrients that they need. And so in order to grow a thicker cut of meat, you would need some mechanism to get nutrients to those inner cells. And many of the clean meat startups are working on that right now. Does that suggest that all clean meat is is either is does it have any fat in it yeah so interestingly enough the very first one of the clean burgers that was served up in 2013 was pure muscle cells so it really was more like a protein cake rather than what you would think of as a hamburger sure however there are companies now uh, like one clean meat startup that was founded in 2018 called mission barns that are focused just on growing clean fat so they are growing fat cells from animals that you could then add in to let's say uh, that original burger, and I had some of their they made like a uh, duck fat that they uh, grew recently that they were kind enough to share with me, and I ate it, and I must say it tasted very good. What form was it in? Was it, or did you just like was it on a toothpick? Um, no, so I tasted both the fat on its own, and then they also put it. Interestingly enough, they made like they made uh, plant based sausages, so they took like plant proteins. That had like the texture of uh, sausage, but then they added duck fat to it that mm. they had grown. And so it was pretty delicious. So you could tell like if you ever try like a plant-based sausage and then you try a sausage that is plant-based but also a duck fat, you really can tell the difference. Right. Well, and that opens up the entire market for, you know, additions and um, improvements to the to the plant-based proteins. You know, a, a, if, if a, uh, a garden burger – uh, if, if, if that's not palatable for you, if a garden burger also had, you know, some, um, some clean fat in it and it was mixed up <laughs> like that just offer that opens the doors, I think for a lot of other people to try it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there would be like some market for that. My guess is that most people eating garden burgers probably don't want to be eating animal fat. Um, and so if your only reason for eating it though, is an ethical concern and you're not, it's not, you're eating it for health reasons. Yeah. I, I think that's probably true. I suspect though that most people who are eating plant-based meats are doing it for health reasons, and they probably would like to be avoiding animal fats. Yeah, I saw I saw you had uh, uh, an in-depth conversation, and I know he's a friend of yours with Rich Roll, and I, I didn't I didn't get far enough into understanding um, kind of what what his take is, but I I wonder I wonder. How many, or maybe you have statistics on this, how many people are eating vegan or raw vegan uh, for health versus uh, for ethical considerations? Yeah, it's the majority. So 
I mean, what often happens is that people will decide, let's say, to become vegan for health reasons, and then they adopt the ethical reasons later. Uh, they may, once they are no longer eating it, then say, oh, yeah, also it seems messed up to be doing to animals what we do to them. Uh, but most people who are in the plant-based protein market are doing it for health reasons. And there, are, the number of vegans out there who are vegan really purely for ethical reasons is quite small. Uh, but they exist, and I mean, they are out there. Yeah. What other what other products besides besides uh, you know you you mentioned uh, the company that's that's making um, leather. Um, have you touched it? Felt it? Tried tried yeah. some leather shoes on some some. Cl- is, <laughs> is it called? Would you consider it clean leather? So I would call it that, but uh, the makers of it have an entirely new name for it. Uh, so Modern Meadow calls it leather. They call it Zoa, Z-O-A. And so they're looking to brand Zoa as an entirely novel material. They don't want Zoa to be considered, oh, it's just leather. They want it to be like this entirely new thing. And so think about it. Like with cattle, when so and also to answer your question, yes, I have held Zoa in my hand before. It's very cool. Um, but when you think about it, like cattle, first off, they have lots of imperfections on their skin from, let's say, insect bites or injuries or being branded or for whatever reasons there could be imperfections. Well, when you're growing the leather in the lab, you don't have any imperfections at all. It's all pristine coming out of the lab. Also, cows very stubbornly do not come in the shapes of wallets and handbags and car seats and more. And so there's a lot of waste in the leather industry because you're cutting this and you have little strips of leather and that gets used for either landfill or it gets used for very cheap filling materials and so on. Whereas in the lab, you can grow the leather into any shape you want. You can grow it into the shape of a car seat or a handbag or a pair of shoes. And so that allows you much greater functionality. You can make it as thin or as thick as you want, whatever color you want, make it transparent, translucent, whatever you want to do. So this really is not just like making leather. It is making an entirely new material that, yes, is based on uh, on collagen, which is the primary component of leather, but it really is like a functionally new thing. So uh, think about other new materials that we have um, invented. Like uh, think about, for example, if you buy a Patagonia shirt, it might be made out of um, out of some material that is not necessarily a natural material, but it's really thin and it keeps you really warm. Uh, how is amazing? How is it so thin and yet it keeps you warm? And uh, that's the type of functionality that I think we could envision from this type of leather. And frankly, I think that something similar is true for clean meat. Right now, the, the manufacturers are really just trying to make meat that's the same as the meat that we eat today. But think about living in a time, let's say, before there was cheese. So you had cow's milk, but there was no cheese. Nobody had heard of cheese. Nobody knew about cheese. And then they figure out how to curdle milk. And now all of a sudden you have the proliferation of all of these different types of cheeses that people eat from blue cheese to all the other from cheddar and all the other things. Well, what world might be awaiting us culinarily speaking out there with clean meat that we could invent entirely new categories of food based on meat that we don't even conceive of today because we haven't invented them yet. Right. Yeah. Oh, my mind is just sort of picturing all sorts of (laughs) fun stuff. (laughs) Yeah, actually, there's a there's a pretty fun cookbook. It's the only cookbook, to my knowledge, that has ever been uh, published with only recipes that cannot be made today. It's called the In Vitro Meat Cookbook. And it's a funny uh, cookbook that looks at possibilities of ways that you could 
produce various types of what they call in vitro meat, which is obviously a repulsive way to put it. Um, but uh, what they put in, so my favorite, there's all types of things in there that are really funny, but my favorite is the celebrity cubes. And so, you know, lots of people, they want to prove that they are, fan, you know, uber fans of their favorite celebrities. And so they have autographs or they have posters and they go to their shows. Well, maybe there'll be a market to say, hey, you really want to be a fan of your biggest celebrity? What better way to prove it than to eat them? Like maybe Jay-Z and Beyonce will like, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce will take like little cells off of their skin and then grow like Jay-Z and Beyonce cubes and then people can have this, you know. Oh, (laughs) wow. And there we go. There you go, celebrity cubes. And there we go. And that's that's where the podcast really gets sensational. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, wow. maybe, it's gonna be the, maybe maybe somebody wants to Sean McCormick cube. I mean, there could be there's some super fan out there. Dude, who wouldn't want a Sean McCormick cube? I'd be delicious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that opens up Pandora's box to all sorts of, like, d- dark, dystopic, futuristic, like... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Of all the things yeah. that you've tasted... Uh, and I know that you've, you know, you've, you've got a lot of contacts in the, in, in this universe, but you know, of all the things that you've tasted, which tasted the most, uh, which tasted the best and which tasted the most like Mm. it's, uh, uh, original. Well, I really enjoyed the, um, the foie gras that I ate at Hampton Creek, which again is now called just, um, I've never eaten actual foie gras in my life though. So it's not like I had a basis to compare it to. Um, but it was, you know, foie gras is French for fatty liver and the conventional means of producing it is by torturing ducks and geese to enlarge their livers by force feeding them repeatedly. Uh, It's a pretty hideous practice. It's been banned in over a dozen countries. It's so inhumane that it's illegal in California, not only to produce it, but even to sell it is illegal in California. So I've never eaten it myself. Um, but you know, a lot of foodies tend to, uh, have good things to say about it. And so I tried it and I say it tasted really good. Unsurprisingly, eating something that's really rich in fat tastes good. Uh, And so I I did really enjoy that. Um, And then in terms of what tasted the most like meat, uh, probably when I ate uh, the duck that Memphis Meats offered me, I had like a duck medallion and it was excellent and it really was meaty and I really enjoyed it. And I hope that that product will be commercialized in the near future because I think a lot of people would would really be into eating that. Well, ducks cause sort of an interesting um, uh, flesh, right? Because it's it's very it's very dark. It looks almost red, you know, red like beef. It's it's really rich. It's got a unique sort of gamey flavor. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I thought so too, and uh, I did as a kid eat duck and. Uh, you know, it's been a long time for me, but I, um, I really liked this when I ate it. So I am sort of a skeptic and fan of conspiracy theories across the board. And, uh, one thing sort of occurred to me as I follow the breadcrumbs into the future to, to, to envision a future of, of, uh, of clean meat creation across the world. And I start to think about the big players and I start to think about the powers that be, and the man and the people that are controlling food. Uh, and uh, I have, you know, sort of a, a general concern that that the big boys uh, and girls out there that are that are most interested in controlling our food um, 
may take this power um, as a way to, uh, or, or this technology to develop clean meat as a way to further control our food supplies. Um, what, mm. what do you say to that? Well, I don't think it's that different from what we have today, to be honest with you, Sean. Um, I mean, the reality is that we have a very small number of companies that dominate a very large portion of meat production today. And uh, that isn't something that, uh, that a lot of people think is a good idea, but it is the reality. So I think that clean meat, while yes, I do think there will be some dominant players, probably the same players that are dominant in the meat industry today, actually, I do think that it will help democratize meat production in the sense that it would allow for easier, more localized brewing of various artisanal meats. And uh, in the same way that, for example, you're not going to be able to have a slaughterhouse in a city or even really right on the outskirts of one, uh, because a lot of people don't want that, but you could have a brewery there that could be doing it. You could also think about how it could democratize fish production, for example. So right now, if you don't live near the water, they're the only pathway for fish to you involves lots of middle people. You've got to have the fishermen and then the brokers at the, at the dock. And then it gets like, there needs to be an, a cold chain that goes all the way to the inland, wherever you are. Whereas with clean meat, you could just have, you know, brewery pumping out fish protein right, right there in your landlocked town. And so you could have uh, yourself be far less dependent on some large fishing company or chain of command from the ocean to your home than otherwise would be. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I think about the, you know, the, the, the technological demand in order to create the stuff. And I, and I, and, and because you've, as I, as I think about big, you know, brewing silos for creating clean meat, this, the, the same way that they make, you know, beer that I love. And when you, uh, clarify that for now, at least, uh, it's basically ground meat. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's patties and stuff. There's, there's, it's, 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 it's probably exponentially more challenging to create, uh, a, a, a boneless chicken breast than a chicken patty. Um, but I wonder about, you know, I wonder about the limitations on that. I just, my, my head and I'm, I'm going in all sorts of directions here with thinking about that. Uh, yeah, it is more complex, but not impossible. I mean, you know, most of these technologies that the clean meat producers are using have been invented in the biomedical space. And, you know, for example, if you were to burn your arm by accident right now, you know, in the past, they would have to take a skin graft from somewhere else in your body, maybe from your butt and put that skin in onto your arm there. Now we can take a little tiny uh, skin biopsy from your healthy arm and grow your skin outside of your body and then put it in your wound and your body accepts it, not just because it's human skin, but because it is actually your skin. And that's the type of technology that would have been considered, you know, something for Star Trek decades ago, and yet it's a reality today. And so if we can do that, uh, I don't think that the leap is that great to go from ground meat to whole cuts of meat, especially since when you're when you don't need a functional organ, but you just need something that is edible and nutritious and safe, uh, it's a much lower hurdle. Right now, and then it's just you, you're just you're just considering like what does it look like at scale? Who's going to be able to buy a, you know, a, um, a twenty dollar clean meat patty or or um, yeah? What do most what what's the most common objection that you get from skeptics on this? 
Oh, it's just about the natural issue really? um, that, that you already raised. But I mean, most people don't think about how food is produced today. I mean, is when, you, when people are feasting on their uh, seedless watermelon and they're loving that it's seedless, do they contemplate whether or not that is natural or not? Right. Uh, any seedless product. But if you look at how seedless watermelons are produced, it's not that savory of a process. Um, and the same is so for so many other foods that we eat today. I mean, just take, I'll give you one example. Think about cheese today. Uh, it used to be that, so the way that you get uh, milk to curdle is with something called rennet. Rennet is a, um, it's, it's a thing that is in a calf's intestinal lining. And the functional enzyme, enzyme in it is called chymosin. And a couple decades ago, um, actually, I think a few decades ago now, scientists figured out how to produce chymosin on its own. So you don't need in calf intestinal linings to make cheese anymore. And now nearly all of the hard cheese that people in America eat today contains uh, rennet that was made through a microbial fermentation in which bacteria are genetically engineered to produce chymosin. And they produce it and then they put it into the product. And because the chymosin is separated from the genetically modified bacteria, even though it's the product of genetic engineering, it's still labeled GMO free. And so that's hmm. how cheese is made today. Uh, and most people don't really mind at all. <laughs> they don't mind at all. I mean, even people who say that they're concerned about GMOs are still eating that just in the same way that people who say that they're concerned about GMOs are still eating GMO produce on, or, on a near daily basis. So, I don't think that most people contemplate how food is produced today. Uh, there's very little that is natural about how we produce food. And in many ways, that's good because we have a safer, more abundant food sources today than we did 100 years ago. Um, you know, your chance of getting sick from food today is less than it was in the past. And your chance of starving from lack of access to food today is much less than it was in the past because we have used technology to improve the ways that we produce food. And considering all of the detrimental side effects that animal agriculture has, I think that using technology in this sense probably is an even more important application of technology to the food security issue than maybe anything else. Right. I think that's, I mean, that's, that's huge. The population is going to be, you know, 10 billion in a few years. And how are we going to feed all these people? Is the, is the appetite for meat going down? Doesn't no, it's not. It's going way up, and 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 how do we, how do we, how do we feed our, how do we feed our planet, right? And uh, you know, it's not as though uh, people are are rallying for insect protein. You know, there's some there's some good inroads. You know, there's you know, um, you know, companies using you know companies like EXO who are using um, you know cricket protein and and, and exoskeleton um, to create food for people and. But yeah, the demands are not going to go down, and so how can we use technology to 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 feed our people? What, uh, can you speak to that for just a minute? Yeah, well, I think you're right. Uh, look, right now we have 7.6 billion humans walking around, and the last time I checked, procreating was still a thing that most people like to do. So we're going to be at about 10 billion by the year 2050. The Earth is not getting any bigger humanity's footprint on it is getting bigger. Not only are we going to continue swelling our population numbers, but on a per person basis, humans are eating more meat than ever before. In America, we eat more meat per person than in all of American uh, history. 
The same is so globally speaking, as nations like China and Brazil and India and Mexico are bringing themselves out of the developing world and into the developed world, uh, per person meat consumption goes through the roof. And so you have rapidly increasing demand for meat and meat is a very resource intensive food to produce. So you have the problem both of more people and of greater demand per person for the most resource intensive way to feed ourselves. Uh, the folks who are becoming part of the developed world in China want to eat the way that Americans have been eating for decades. And there's only a few hundred million of us and we're already causing huge problems for the way that we eat. Now imagine a billion Chinese doing the same. That is uh, really spelling real concern for the future of our planet, for the future of our species, and frankly, for the future of many other species on the planet too, uh, especially when you consider the role that animal agriculture plays in heating up our atmosphere and in using land, water, and soil, and more. So if we're gonna, if we're gonna take it seriously, about how we're going to feed the incoming billions of people on our planet in the coming decades. We can't rely on the same methods that we are producing food today because there's just not enough land to do it. We're going to have to get a lot more efficient. We're going to need a type of second green revolution. And in this case, instead of hybridizing wheat, which was, you know, enabled lots of people not to starve to death in the last green revolution, in this green revolution, we're going to have to learn how to grow meat without animals. And thankfully, there are now um, many people on the planet who are trying to foment that type of an agricultural revolution to go from instead of domesticating animals like we did 10,000 years ago to domesticating animal cells and finding the right cell lines that grow the best meat, produce, let's say, the best milk or the best eggs and so on, so that we can continue to enjoy the foods that we love without destroying ourselves and the planet in the process. Yeah, the 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 term that that you've that you've used is a second domestication, and I think that that's a really um it's a really uh that's a clean way of describing it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't come up with that term. The first person who told it to me is a friend of mine named Seth Bannon. Seth is an investor who runs a, um, a venture capital fund called Fifty Years Hence with his partner Ella. And you know, I I'm not sure if Seth invented the term or not, but I think it's a good way to describe to describe what's going on. Yeah, that. We are domesticating animals at the cellular level now, and it can't happen soon enough. Regarding uh, the re regarding the money that's flowing into this space, um, uh, you know, it's I've, I've seen that you know some of the some of the most successful and some of the wealthiest people on the planet are now um, getting involved. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, the sort of sub the, the substantiation of this market by, you know, by the funding from, um, from outside sources? Yeah. So uh, right now there's probably, my guess has been around $40 million invested, uh, throughout the variety of these companies in, uh, cellular agriculture, or at least in queen meat. More than that, if you start looking at leather and some of the other animal products, but just on meat alone, probably about $40 million from a variety of venture capital funds. Um, even, uh, for example, um, Y Combinator, which is the legendary uh, tech startup um, accelerator out of Silicon Valley that has produced lots of huge hits like Dropbox and others. And uh, they now, in their request for startups, and they ask for startups to apply to them, uh, are asking for queen meat companies. They want new queen meat startups that they can fund and invest in. And it just goes to show like this is a legitimate field for uh, scientists to go into now, that it's not uh, just something that, you know, somebody who is like really bent on trying to save the planet is going to do, but rather scientists who want to get in this field and make a lot of money 
can also get into this now. And at the same time, $40 million, it sounds like a lot to mere mortals like you and I, Sean, but in reality, considering the, the weight of what needs to be done, 40 million is a drop in the bucket. I mean, we need hundreds of millions of dollars invested in this space. And that, I think, is going to be what's going to happen in the coming several years, because in order to create an actually viable clean meat industry that can start replacing conventional meat, not just uh, being a niche product, but actually replacing it, that's going to take a lot more investment. Yeah. Yeah. But it's but it's obviously I mean, the ramifications this this could be this could be the thing really that saves the planet. Do you think, do you believe, do you believe that strongly? I strongly believe it. I mean, look, it's not the only problem that the planet faces, but it is a huge problem that the planet faces. We spend billions of dollars every year right now in research into clean energy, solar, wind, geothermal, and more. Why aren't we doing the same when it comes to producing clean meat? I mean, the reality is according to the United Nations that Animal agriculture contributes more greenhouse gas emissions than all of the transportation sector combined, more than all the cars, all the boats, all the trucks, all the airplanes, all the trains, all combined are less than animal agriculture. So if we want to get serious about curbing climate change, well, I mean, how can we ignore what's staring us in the face three times a day when we sit down to eat? Yes, we should be investing to find alternatives to fossil fuels, but we also need alternatives to factory farms. We have great options on the market today, plant-based meats, where we take plants and make them taste like meat. Many of them are really good. I really like them. I eat them regularly. I hope a lot of people will too. But for people who feel wedded to consuming actual meat from animals, this is a great way to satiate that desire without harming the planet so much in the process. I certainly fall into that category, and I think you know for for our audience and, and the people like myself and sort of the uh, biohacking uh, community, you know, I eat for ketosis, um, so I'm eating high amounts of fat um, daily, uh, both animal and 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 vegetable. Uh, I think that for for this crowd of people who actually want to eat the meat want to eat actual meat for nutritional value, but are also thoughtful people and forward thinking and, um, mm-hmm. and conscious Th- this, this seems like a really, a really good solution because it, you can have your cow and eat it too. <laughs> exactly. What a, what a great, <laughs> what a, a great way to put it, Sean. You're welcome to use that if you'd like. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll attribute it. Uh, <laughs> um, so as we, uh, as we put this, as, as we take this thing to bed, um, uh, I'd love for you to finish this sentence, if you if you would. Everyone should know that clean meat is not science fiction; it is science fact. That we no longer, in the near future, are going to have the same uh, need to raise and slaughter animals for food because we will be able to grow that same meat in a more efficient and safer and more humane way. That's excellent. I've really enjoyed your book. Uh, can you tell our audience where they can find it, how they can get it, and um, and and where they can get in contact with you? I don't know if you if you like to engage yeah. with folks online or whatever, but give us your vitals. Yeah, yeah, that would be wonderful. So you can uh, get the book at cleanmeat.com. Again, just go to cleanmeat.com, and when you're there, you can email me. You can order the book. Of course, you can order lots of copies of the book for all your friends and family for the holiday season. What a perfect gift to get. Ha ha. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. 
Excellent. Paul, thanks for joining us on the, this episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. Sean, I would say it was an optimal time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Cheers.